So this week at our community group, because I have done quite a bit of study in regards to the topic of spiritual gifts and miraculous spiritual gifts, I called an audible in our group and I basically opened up for questions about these things, particularly, you know, thinking because I preached last week on miraculous gifts and the cessation of those gifts, we would get a lot of questions. 90% of the questions that I had on Wednesday night in our group were about speaking in tongues, which I thought was very amusing since I have not preached on that yet as of this moment, but yet it is the most or the most often questioned situation or concern or um, debate that circulates around the miraculous spiritual gifts and are they still for today. And so last week, to kind of catch us up, we looked at uh, spiritual gifts in the church, most particularly those miraculous spiritual gifts. And uh, Paul deals with these in Corinth because... In the city of Corinth, tongue speaking was also in the forefront of their mind. And I know that you have probably come in contact with uh, a YouTube video or a family member or some situation where you have seen speaking in tongues in today's culture or in today's church or what we would what they would call speaking in tongues. Um, typically what that looks like in, in charismatic and Pentecostal churches today, it is often a, um, it's a verbal uh, gibbering and reciting of nonverbal wordage uh, that is typically making sounds and saying things that are unintelligible, um, whereby people are calling this um, speaking in tongues. And so you've seen this maybe in in different scenarios, and and we need to ask ourselves, you know, is that biblical tongues? Um, Is that something that God requires for us today? What's really happening there there because it causes great confusion? Well, we're going to answer those questions today uh, because Paul is dealing with that in 1 Corinthians 14 in comparison to prophecy and tongue speaking. Now, as I tried to communicate last week, I believe, like many people in the Christian church today, I believe that these miraculous gifts, prophecy, speaking in tongues, healing and miracles, have ceased in their function in the church today. They're no longer needed. And I made the case why that is, because those things, particularly the healing and the miraculous gifts and the prophecy and the revelation and such, were needed for the apostolic age, the foundation of the church, and those things are no longer needed because the church has been established. And the, um, the captivating thing about tongues today, to me, is more about entertainment than it is anything to do with worshiping the Lord. It has to do, in my mind, with the focus of attention on oneself or a certain person, not on God and what He is calling people to do. And so to me, it is a distraction in churches today. It's unbiblical in churches today. That's my interpretation and that's my opinion. But what does the Bible say? And that's really what's important here. 
What does the Bible say and how can we best understand these things? I called them last week sign gifts. Uh, I didn't make that term up, but they are oftentimes, and we will look at this today, sign gifts were uh, gifts by the Spirit given to individuals to authenticate that person as performing or carrying out a work of God in some way. So, for example... We saw the gifts and the power of healing that would accompany the apostles so that the apostle Paul could say, you saw the power of God manifested in me. That was a sign of the authority of the apostleship that God had given Paul. Okay, the sign itself wasn't the focus. It was the authority and the power that God had given the apostle Paul to draw people back to the message that Paul was speaking. All right. Well, tongues is no different. It was a sign gift. It was a miraculous gift. It has ceased because the revelation of God has been given to the church. It is complete. There is nothing else being added to it. No further authentication needs to come. My message to you does not need to be authenticated by a sign because I am not prophesying to you. I am preaching to you. I am taking what's already written and helping you try to understand these things. The Lord is not using me as a vessel in this moment to give you new revelation from Him. We are taking what's already been given. Okay? So I want us to understand these things. And the question comes then, why is chapter 14 even applicable to us today if it it no longer applies? That's a great question. Well, one, because all of God's Word is applicable to us in the church. And although we will see things in Scripture that are descriptive, they are never or not oftentimes prescriptive. Meaning they describe an event, but it doesn't mean that that event is necessary to be replicated in the church today. This is an example in chapter 14. In addition... We've already looked at examples whereby Paul was dealing with situations in Corinth where we would also agree this is not descriptive of the church today, although we can apply these truths and find application in them. For example, in earlier chapters, we looked at Christian liberty. And in that Christian liberty, the the Corinthians were going to pagan social gatherings in temples whereby they were engaging in things that were a stumbling block to the Christians in that situation. Well, church, none of us are going to pagan temples today that where they hold social gatherings. And yet the message and application of Christian liberty was very applicable to us today, even though the context and the situation was different. So we have very great truths to learn from chapter 14, even though these gifts are no longer in use, because the greatest point of chapter 14 is not about tongue speaking, it's not about prophecy, it's about are we being built up in the body of Christ, are we being edified for the glory of God? That's one of the reasons we're here, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations, and to build each other up in the faith so that we are all participating together in our relationship to Christ, that we are building each other up in Jesus. So last week we looked at prophecy in some detail. I gave you the definition 
that was helpful to me by Tom Schreiner, who writes, quote, Prophecy is the reception of spontaneous revelations from God that instruct, encourage, and warn the people of God, end quote. It's hard for us to imagine exactly how this played out in the church because we weren't there. We don't get a snapshot of a church setting where prophecy was manifested and practiced in those early days of the church. We don't really get that picture. We don't really see that. So what has happened in the church in regards to prophecy is that we have taken the testimony of people's experiences and that becomes the bedrock of our definition of these biblical truths. I'll give you an example. Early on in my ministry, I was a youth worker before I was a youth pastor. And we took a group of students on a youth trip to a summer camp. On the way home from that camp, the bus pulled over to a gas station. The students got out. They got some uh, refreshments while the bus filled up with gas. The, fi- the students filed back up into the bus. And before we head out to leave, a random strange woman walks up onto the 40-passenger bus. She asked the leaders at that time, not me. I was in the back. But she asked the leaders in the front, I have a word from the Lord that I need to say to these students. Can I say, that to, say it to them? And they said, absolutely. We're not going to stand in the way of someone speaking a word from the Lord. So this woman, very graciously and very passionately, pleaded with the students on this bus that, they, that she, she literally called out students, not by name and not by pointing, but she identified there are students on this bus that are pretending to be Christians. You're living a lie. You need to repent and you need to give your life to Christ. If that's you, you need to raise your hand. Okay? Well, guess what happened? Somebody raised their hand. A young girl that was growing up at the children's home raised her hand. And for years... That story was told at the church as an incredible movement of God. Now, I don't want to be skeptical here. I'm not trying to be a Holy Spirit Debbie Downer. But let's step back for a second and let's, let's logically think about how the probability of that happening on any church bus in any city where students are on board that that story or that, that message could be given. Is it likely that that could happen on almost every church bus and it not be an official revelation or impression from the Lord? I think the answer is yes. Okay? Because it was general. Because most teenagers are struggling with their faith. What teenager that's growing up in that struggle with their faith would not probably think that that person was talking to them? Okay? So what I'm trying to tell you is Prophecy is not personal impressions that the Lord gives you where you are so moved to pass that message on from the Lord to someone else. That's how some people define it. We looked at that last week. We're not going to revisit it. Okay? What I'm not denying is is that the Holy Spirit might have impressed upon this woman's mind based upon her conviction of the Scriptures that the Word of God should be proclaimed to kids that the reality of false converts do exist 
and the likelihood that false converts were on that bus. So she obediently went to that bus, stood up in front of the students, and called them out to examine themselves and turn their lives to Christ. Those are two different things. And you know what the main thing is? One doesn't have to say, this is from the Lord. This is literally just a message from Scripture calling people to repentance and can be legitimate and real. The other one makes it out to be a spiritual, mystical experience that I don't believe happens today. Not in those settings. Okay? Not when you have the the revealed, proclaimed, authenticated, inerrant Word of God that's been given to us. I would prefer that woman to get up and say, John chapter 3, verse 16 says this. Right? That's the message. So prophecy, then, in Paul's mind, is a time in which God was still giving revelation to people, the apostles and prophets, as we looked at last week. And in the church settings... That opportunity was given. The Lord would give a revelation and that revelation was proclaimed to the people in the church setting. In in Corinth, the problem was, is that they were more tantalized by the speaking in tongues than they were the revelation of God coming through the prophets and the apostles. Why? Because it it was mysterious. Okay? It was strange. Okay, if we think in our minds and our hearts, we can imagine how odd that was to experience as we think about tongues today. Wow, this is really strange. Now, what we want to do today is we want to look at Scripture and go, well, what was happening? Was it gibberish? What was the, what were the, what was the foundation of these tongues that were, that were occurring? Well, I I don't want to give you my opinion. I want to just go back to Scripture and say, how does Scripture define the speaking of tongues? Okay? So, first thing we're going to look at is the use of tongues in the book of Acts. Okay? I'm going to get to 1 Corinthians 14. Let's go back to Acts for a minute. Now, to set up Acts, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2. You can go ahead and have your your, your, uh, finger there on your device or your Bible. But before we go there, remember that Luke also wrote the book of Acts as well as his gospel. And I think what's really cool about Luke's gospel and chapter 2, the book of Acts, is the way in which the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, they, they gel together, they sync together in the stories that we get of Jesus and the early church. And what's interesting is in Luke chapter 3, and this is, Luke's not the only one to to record these words. Matthew does as well. But in Luke chapter 3, at the baptism of Jesus, the Bible tells us in verse 16 and 17, it says, John the Baptist answered them and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than me, and I'm not fit to untie the thongs on his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit... And fire. Okay? Key words there. Jesus, the Messiah, is coming. He is greater than John the Baptist. He will bring about the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of fire. What does that mean? 
What does that have to do with tongues? Okay. Well, he tells us in verse 17. His winnowing fork, John the Baptist says, is in his hand to thoroughly clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So you have the wheat and the chaff or the chaff, however you want to say it. The wheat representing the church, God's people, and the chaff representing those who are unbelievers who will face the judgment of God. So what John the Baptist is saying about Jesus is that the Messiah will come. He will bring about a time where the church is gathered that will receive the Holy Spirit. That's the sign of the church coming together. And he will also baptize those with fire, the very judgment of God, those who are unbelievers. All right? Now that's very important to our uh, important to our discussion because when you fast forward to Acts chapter 2 you see this happening. You see the very prophecies of God through even John the Baptist coming true when at Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost the Holy Spirit comes down and what does he do? He authenticates and he falls upon the apostles in the gathering of the church begins. The inception of the church Begins, And what's important to note is the Holy Spirit's action in that. Okay? The Holy Spirit is coming upon these apostles, and these apostles do what? What is the sign that they demonstrate that they have received the baptism of the Spirit in those moments? They speak in tongues. Alright? So Acts chapter 2 is one of the foundational points in our understanding of tongues, what happens in the days of Pentecost? Well, from a, re- from a redemptive historical perspective, we are seeing the baptism of Jesus, which is preparing Him for ministry on earth. And then at Pentecost, we see the baptism of the leaders of the church and the, the, uh, it's signifying the baptism of all of God's people when they come to faith in Christ, preparing them for the journey that they're going to take forth in the church. This is this, this beautiful picture of what's happening in all of history in God's plan for the church. The baptism comes, and what do the people do at Pentecost? They begin speaking in tongues. So in Acts chapter 2, we see this. The the Spirit comes. These believers, these apostles, begin to proclaim with an unknown language to the audience that has gathered. And by the way, folks, it is an audience of a diversity of nations. And the people there are hearing the, the, the apostles proclaim revelation of God in the known languages of those visitors to Jerusalem. That's what's happening. Okay? Peter's not standing up there babbling, making some strange sounds and clicks and noises. He's not barking or flopping or or dancing or running. He is speaking revelation with intelligible words. They just happen to be words that he does not know as an apostle, but the people in the audience know because they are from those nations. 
Look at Acts chapter 2. Let's look at verses 6 through 11. When this sound occurred, the sound of the Holy Spirit coming as, as a great wind, it says the crowd came together and they were bewildered. They were amazed, each one of them, hearing them speak in his own language. Now, I don't even think Luke would use the word speak if it was about sounds and not words. He's talking about verbal words here. They were amazed and astonished, verse 7, saying, Why are not all these speaking Galileans? Why are these all, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of them, uh, we hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and districts of Libya and Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own, what? Tongues. Speaking of the mighty deeds of God. There we have words. Speaking the mighty deeds of God in what? Unknown languages. Unknown to who? Unknown to the apostles. Places that these men, uneducated men, had never been. Countries they had never visited. Language schools they had never attended. But they were speaking known earthly languages to other people that they did not know themselves. That's the gift. The gift is the mystery of speaking a language that you have never studied. Okay? What's unique about Pentecost in the scheme of tongues is that there were people present that understood the language. Therefore, the interpretation was upon the audience that was hearing. That's important. It's important for a couple reasons. Number one... There was no need for an interpreter. The interpreters were there. There was no need for someone else to stand up and interpret the words because the interpretation was upon those in the audience. Why is that significant? Because again, when we look from a redemptive standpoint, Acts chapter 2 does not just reflect the church coming together. It reflects the church of all nations coming together. Matter of fact, you could say that Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost is the reversal of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Because what happened as a condemnation and judgment where God took sinful man and dispersed them and gave them different languages... Tongues at Pentecost is an example of all that coming back together in a moment. In a shadowy moment, but a moment that will look forward to heaven when in Revelation chapter 7, we read that people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language will gather around the throne and together sing, salvation belongs to our God and the one who sits on the throne. That's the beauty of tongues that God used in the history of the church and what it meant and signified, not just at Acts, but what it means in the future. Unknown languages glorifying God and yet in unison. 
So in Acts chapter 2, we see the gift of tongues as unknown languages with interpreters present proclaiming the mighty deeds of God. But then we continue because in Acts chapter 10... Well, actually, we could go to Acts chapter 8. It's more disputable. In Acts chapter 8, the baptism of the Holy Spirit falls upon Samaritans. Now, the Bible doesn't say in Acts chapter 8 that the Samaritans spoke in tongues. But you can imply that upon the text because every other situation in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit falls upon a different nationality or culture of people that put their faith in Christ, tongues was present. But we we can only imply that it's not in the text. But in Acts chapter 10 it is. So in Acts chapter 2, the gathered nations that were present at Pentecost heard the gospel. Thousands were saved, put their faith in Christ. They heard languages in their own tongue, their native tongue. Revelations from God. In Acts chapter 8, Samaritans heard the gospel, put their faith in Christ, received the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, Peter visits Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a soldier. He's a leader. He comes to hear the gospel, he and his household. And what happens? They're saved. They receive the Holy Spirit. And what does Acts chapter 10 verse 46 say? For they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. Gentiles being included into the church. Samaritans being grafted into the church, those present at Pentecost being a part of the inception of the church, the sign of them bringing in, being brought into the church was exactly what John the Baptist prophesied, that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not fire, because they were gathered to the church. They weren't the chaff, they were the wheat. They were being gathered into the church, received the Holy Spirit, tongues were present, tongues were the sign that the Holy Spirit had come. Tongues were the known languages that they would have understood, spoken by Peter and others who would not have understood those languages. We also see in Acts chapter 19 something very similar, a little bit stranger because it's not a culture of people, but it does represent a culture, a, a, a spiritual culture of people. In Acts chapter 19, in the city of Ephesus, uh, Paul runs into a, a group of disciples from John the Baptist. Kind of, I guess they've been hiding in a cave somewhere and they didn't know the full story of Jesus and they didn't know all that was going on and they encounter Paul and they, they are still, as the Bible says, under the baptism of John, which was a proselytized baptism of, of entering into the Jewish nation, but not necessarily uh, putting faith in Christ as their only source of salvation and hope. So they get, they, they have the gospel explained to them. They too are saved. They receive the Holy Spirit. And they too, the Bible says, engage in prophesying in tongues. Acts chapter 19. So what does Acts communicate to us about tongues? Tongues are not as ecstatic gibberish. Tongues are intelligible, known languages on the earth that are unknown to the people speaking them. The gift is, is that the Holy Spirit gave these people the opportunity to proclaim revelation in an unknown language to them. 
And people understood those things or interpreted those things and worshipped the Lord based on the revelation that was given. So then, what about tongues in Corinth? We see in Acts, well, we come to the same problem that we came to last week. If we consider prophecy and we consider the application of prophecy throughout all of Scripture, why would we agree with some who say that prophecy has changed from the Old Testament practice into the New Testament time? I don't think that it's logical to do such a thing. To say, well, prophecy used to be infallible. Prophecy was a direct message from the Lord. It was, it was given from, from God to man without error and perfect in every way. But when we get to the New Testament practice of prophecy, what happens? Oh, well, it can be wrong. You can get it wrong. Just, you know, take another ticket, try again. When the same sense, if we're looking at tongues in the New Testament, why would it look one way in Acts and a different way in Corinth? Some may make that statement. Some may argue that point. And, I, and the reason why is because of certain phrases that Paul uses in Corinth that I've, or in the book of Corinthians that I've talked to you about before that lead people to think, well, maybe tongues in Corinth and the early church were a little different than they were in Acts. Well, what words were spoken? Well, in the book of, uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul talks about the... Um, we'll just flip to verse 13, chapter 13. He says in verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... But do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. People take that to go, well, see, in Corinth, it must have been different in tongues because the tongues there could have been an angelic language, a language that's not common to earth. It's a heavenly language. But we looked at that passage and we said, no, that's Paul using hyperbole. Even in the Old Testament, angels spoke to men in Normal, known words. They didn't even use their own language. They visited Abraham. They spoke in the language that Abraham understood. They did not speak in some heavenly language that needed an interpreter. Also, we see in chapter 14, where Paul is talking about, look at verses 1 through 4. He says, pursue love, yet desire uh, earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially though that you may prophesy. For one who speaks a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. See, they're saying, see, tongues in Corinth were a language that only God could understand. It must have been a heavenly language. No, because what Paul is talking about is not that the the tongue speaking was a heavenly language. It was an unknown language to the people because the people were not having it interpreted. Therefore, it was gibberish to them in a sense as if Joy started standing up and speaking Spanish to people in here that don't know Spanish. It would just sound like gibberish because we don't know that language. So the point is, is that for Paul, he's saying, look, tongue speaking was done inappropriately in that context because there was no interpretation. It was only causing confusion. So therefore, the only person that understood tongues was God. God knew that language. God created that language. Matter of fact, he created that language at Babel. 
So when Paul says in verse 3, or verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, he's, in, he's talking about tongues that not, are not interpreted that only God understands in, the, in that context of the church gathering. And you're like, well, Pastor, I, I still don't know that, that that convinces me that Corinth spoke known languages. Well, let me give you one more at the end of verse 2. He says, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks Mysterion. Mysterion. Paul uses this word over and over and over and over again in his letters in the New Testament, and he constantly uses that word to refer to revelation and wisdom and truth from God. Not, un, not gibberish, but revelation. Intelligible words, logical thoughts that were Capable of humans understanding in that dialect. Mysteries about himself that, that came to be something that the, the Holy Spirit gave wisdom and, and understanding to so that we could comprehend. Therefore, he's saying those speaking in a tongue that are not interpreted were still speaking mysteries, which Paul used to refer to revelation from God. So he makes the comparison in verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation, but the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. And this is what Paul is going to do. He's going to continue to rub prophecy against tongues to show that uninterpreted tongues in the chapter 14 of Corinth were the problem in that church. Prophecy is better in Paul's mind because uninterpreted tongues were just unknown languages that nobody understood and nobody could hear the revelation and the knowledge and the wisdom and the mysteries of God that were being proclaimed. Therefore, they were confused, not edified. They were confused. Matter of fact, in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages of our glory. In chapter 4, verse 1, Let a man regard us in this matter as servants of Christ, or as apostles and stewards of what? The mysteries of God. So Paul, I would say verse 5 is kind of the the summary of his problem. He says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. And I think he means in an appropriate way. But even more, that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So really what Paul says in verse 5 is simply this. If you have in his day interpreted tongues... And prophecy, they line up side by side because they're both about God's revelation. They're both about truth about God. One comes in a mysterious language that is interpreted. Another comes in normal language. But they're both revelation and truth about God that do what? They edify the church. They they point us and focus our minds to the wisdom of God, however they're delivered. Listen, when Adam comes up here and he chooses these songs and he sings them and they are foundational and rock solid in good theology, 
They're not repetitious gibberish, but instead they make your mind focus on the words so that you can think about God, you think about His nature, you think about His church. You are being edified in that. In the same way, but from a non-revelatory perspective, this is what tongues that were interpreted and prophecy were doing in the church. And so he gives a couple examples like Paul always does in verses 7 through 11. He gives us a few examples to say, hey, let me focus your attention on the problem. Uninterpreted tongues were a problem because they are like these things. Number one, in verse 7, he tells us, that's on my next page, verse 7 he says, even lifeless things, yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones How will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? Can you imagine a beautiful instrument like a harp or a flute? And there's no distinction in the notes. There's no change in melody or change in anything. It's just one sound, one sound, one sound. And that is not pleasing to the hearer, right? It doesn't give us any form of a blessing. It's just monotone. It's, it's standard. It's, it's kind of like your old phone when you left it off the hook at your house. Bang, 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 bang. Remember that? Some of you are too young for that. Others not. Or how about a trumpet, he says. A trumpet that's used to call an army to battle. If the soldiers in that army don't understand the meaning of the sound, then are those, those soldiers prepared for battle? If somebody doesn't come together and say, hey, by the way, when you hear the bugle or the trumpet go off and it makes this sound, this means this, and this sound means this, and now you'll be prepared. But if nobody gives that message, if nobody gives that interpretation of the sound, then what happens? The army's unprepared when the sound goes off. Or he even mentions a uncivilized people, a confused people, like, for example, the barbarians, he, he speaks. Now, barbarians, the word there is, is typically just used for someone that's uh, an unknown uh, uh, civilization or a, uh, an uncivilized people. Imagine an emissary going to an uncivilized people and trying to speak their language. Well, we know what happened with Jim Elliot when that happened. Nate Saint, men trying to go and share the gospel to an uncivilized group. It didn't turn out very well for them at first. Praise God for the salvation of those people down the road. But a confused, uncivilized people leads the the speaker and the emissary to danger because there was no proper interpretation or communication between the two. And what we'll see next week, as Paul begins to make his point, is that not only is edification the goal here for the church, but order is important. Order. That there would not be confusion in God's people as they gather. They're not doing things that create distractions and draw attention to ourselves. 
So the application for us, church, is not for me to stand up here and say, pursue speaking in tongues. Pursue prophecy. Listen for a revelation from the Lord. I'm not giving you that command. That's not the application for us today in my interpretation because those things have ceased. What I am telling you to is to do what Paul has applied for us or we can interpret as application. And that is to see the church as a proper place for edification. For building up. Matter of fact, in verse 12, this is his summary statement. So you also, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to do what, Adam? Abound. Adam told us about abounding in our elder meeting yesterday. Abound for the edification of the church. To abound with something means to overflow. In other words, if we understand the function and the purpose of the church, one of those primary purposes is what? That we should gather together to build each other up. Man, I'm going to tell you, that's going to eliminate a lot of problems in churches today, if we grab that. That's like, man, all of a sudden now, I'm here, I'm showing up, I'm coming to bless other people. I'm coming to build other people up. This ain't about me being here. I don't need you to pat me on the back because I showed up at church. I'm here to come serve you. I'm I'm here to come help you. I'm going to come encourage you. I'm going to come rebuke you if I have to. Whatever it takes for your spiritual life to grow your spiritual journey to focus your mind more intently and more clearly on Christ, that's what I'm here to do. If you're here to check boxes, you're in the wrong place. You can go to Esporta Fitness down there and they'll give you an app. And every time you go to the gym, they'll check a box for you. And you'll know exactly that you completed that task. That's not what the church is for. You're here to exalt Christ and build each other up. So as form as as a means of application, let's look at the problem in Corinth in verse 12. He says, "Since you are so zealous for spiritual gifts, that's a rebuke by Paul." You know, like when you're you're you're, you're kind of taking a, a a stab, kind of a subtle stab at somebody. Listen. Some of you since y'all are so zealous to get out of here quick when church is over? That'd be like me taking a a little stab at you. Which none of y'all do, by the way. I have to kick y'all out at 6 (laughs) o'clock. Paul's like, listen, your zealousness is over spiritual gifts when it should be over edification. So let me encourage you, church, do not let your zealousness for amazement and entertainment override the true purpose of the church. That's what spiritual gifts were to a lot of these people. Man, I want to be with this guy because he's wise. Or I, I, want, to, I want to have this leadership position because I have this gift. Or I want to be entertained by the amazing uh, uh, display of, of, of speaking unknown languages. That's what I want. Why? Because we have a craving to be entertained in the church. You know why? Because we have a craving to be entertained as humans. We have to admit that. We have to acknowledge the fact that that is a struggle for all of us. Culture promotes it. And guess what? The church falls in line. 
Entertain us. I better come to this service and be amazed by the sermon. I better be amazed by the music. I better be amazed by the lights and the carpet and the stained glass. I better have an experience. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. I am a product of that mentality. I'm a product of that mentality because I grew up in the youth group culture of the 80s and 90s that made everything about an experience. Am I wrong? Because you know what happened to those kids in the 80s and 90s? They're now adults that want to come to church and have an experience. That's why we turn down the lights in adult church and in kids' church. That's why we have smoke machines in adult church and in kids' church. It's just youth camp all over again. Because youth ministers thought, as I did at one time, that for me to bolster the numbers, man, I had to, I had to, I had to create the environment. I had to have the games and I had to have all these things. And by God's grace, the Lord showed me that that wasn't necessary. By God's grace, I turned the ship. He turned the ship. And I started doing things that were very unpopular in youth ministry. (laughs) I preached through the book of Acts. And parents were coming to me like, why are we not, why are my kids not having fun? I'm like, well, we are having fun, but we're also learning God's word verse by verse. And we're not going to apologize for that. We're not going to dive into a culture that says, hey, I got to go with this gimmick. I got to do these things. So church, don't let zealousness for amazement and entertainment override the purpose of the church. You don't come here to be served. You come to serve and you come to worship. So figure out how you can build other people up and serve them no matter your circumstances. No matter what you have experienced. Number two, abound in edification. Paul says, seek to abound in it. So in other words, the application is, how may you grow and overflow in such a passion to edify others? Think about the things that help you grow in Christ, that build you up. Your Bible study, your, your time of prayer, your fellowship and intimacy with the body of Christ. Paul says we have to abound in that. We have to be so full and then there's excess of that. Why? Because that is exactly what we share with other people. It's like Thanksgiving meal when you've piled your plate up, it's fallen off the side. You know what I mean? we got to come being focused on the true biblical principles of the church. Not about amazement, but about honoring Christ and helping each other grow in the Lord Jesus so that we would be edified. Don't be satisfied with the bare minimum in your Bible study. Don't be satisfied with the bare minimum in preaching. Don't be satisfied with five minutes of fellowship in church when you can have 40 minutes. Don't be satisfied with standing up and saying the Scripture memory. Learn it. Don't be satisfied with someone saying, hey, thanks, uh, I'll pray for you this week. Pray for them every day, every week if you have to. Whatever they need for you to serve them, abound in building each other up. Because in these things, 
we grow together, and we bring glory to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your church. We thank you, Father, that long before eternity, uh, in eternity past, Father, your church was a, a plan in your mind and in your purposes. That you would predestine and call people to salvation throughout the ages and, and throughout different cultures. And, and you would bring about their salvation in the death and resurrection of your son. We thank you, Father, that we can be a part of the church. God, we need this call to serve others and to build others up instead of seeking our own interests. God, we need to be reminded not to be tantalized and mesmerized by the things that an entertaining world promotes and think that it's necessary and purposeful in the church. God, instead, let's trust in what you do and how you grow the church, knowing, God, you will produce results. I thank you for a church like this. I thank you for people that are committed to these things. Lord, I pray that you would give us greater understanding of spiritual gifts so that we would know how to use the ones that you have assigned to us and how we would not need to use the ones that you have called to completion. And all these things, God, we want to bring glory to Christ. So help us understand and learn and grow for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to come now to the Lord's Supper. As we think about the church,